violated. Yes. So under the rules of the International Court of Justice, states must oblige, they must, they're obliged to uphold the rules of the ICJ, the decisions. But if they do not, they can go to the UN Security Council. And so I suspect that we will be seeing this at the Security Council. The real question is whether the United States is going to use that veto or abstain. We want to thank you all for being with us today. Diana Butu, Palestinian human rights attorney, former advisor to the negotiating team of the Palestine Liberation Organization. In 2004, she was part of the legal team that won a case before the International Court of Justice, which ruled Israel's separation wall in the West Bank is illegal under international law. Speaking to us from Haifa, Israel, Raz Siegel, Israeli historian and professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University, and Mahmoud Mamdani, professor of government at Columbia University. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Dr. Demento, and you are listening to KBOO Portland. What is climate change? How is it affecting our lives? And what can we do about it? We'll connect the dots from energy to extreme weather, public health, and more. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizerowitz. Join me for Climate Connections during the evening news, weekdays at 5 p.m. here on 90.7 KBOO Portland. Sound was used for centuries as a method of torture. Place someone's head inside of a bell and ring it. Tune in to KBOO every other Tuesday at 3 a.m. for The Vinyl Pajama Party with your erstwhile host, Brian. And eventually, they'll go You never know what you will find on your radio slash interwebs during the show, but it will be something. They'll go insane. And eventually... That's the Vinyl Pajama Party, alternating Tuesdays at 3 a.m., only on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio is a proud media sponsor of an Oregon story, saving our beaches, farmland, and more. Screening from January 17th through January 31st across multiple venues in Portland and beyond. This film documents the history of Oregon's efforts to protect its coastline and save its farmland from urban sprawl. The documentary features archival footage and interviews with the individuals who helped create Oregon's land use planning program and defended it for the past 50 years. Again, that's a documentary film screening of an Oregon story, saving our beaches, farmland, and more. From January 17th to January 31st, across multiple venues in Portland and beyond. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBOO Evening News. Coming up on the KBOO Evening News, violent crime in Portland is down, and city leaders say that's cause for celebration. Oregonians who received unemployment this year may have had their tax form misplaced in a mailing error. And a bill in Washington state would allow incarcerated people the right to vote.
Good evening. This is the KBOO Evening News for Friday, January 26th, 2024. I'm Ezra. And I'm Josh Salem. Crime stats for 2023 in Portland are in, and they show that violent crime and gun violence are down compared to 2022. Portland Police Bureau data show homicides, non-injury shootings, and the number of homicide victims are down roughly 20% compared to the previous year. Business robberies, carjackings, and aggravated assaults also ticked downward. These numbers don't count the four Portlanders shot and killed by local police in 2023. In contrast, car crash deaths are at a 30-year high, with 75 people losing their lives in fatal crashes last year. Portland Police Chief Bob Day said at a press conference, quote, I'm not here to suggest that our numbers and statistics reflect success, but we are moving in the right direction, particularly in the area of crime, end quote. Portland leaders, including Mayor Ted Wheeler, say policing and the Office of Violence Prevention have made a difference. But Portland's trends mirror those across the nation, indicating there may be larger social and economic factors at play. Violent crime is down across the nation after spikes in 2020 and 2021. Despite improvements, leaders point to Portland's PR problem, that the city's national reputation has been tarnished by visible hopelessness and the crime spike. Wheeler said at the press conference, quote, Portland has rallied, and I'm committed to maintaining this positive momentum for all of these people and the entirety of this community until my last minute in office, end quote. Oregonians expecting tax form 1099-G for unemployment insurance may not have gotten their form or it was mistakenly sent to someone else. Some 32,000 forms were sent out in error, according to the Department of Administrative Services. People may have been mailed their 1099-G in a form that doesn't belong to them. Those folks who didn't get theirs should have a replacement sent by January 31st, along with a letter explaining what happened. Officials say if you received a tax form that doesn't have your name on it, to please immediately shred or destroy the document. It's not considered a breach under the Oregon Consumer Identity Protection Act, but protecting against identity theft is still important. Officials recommend that people check their credit regularly and check out the Oregon Department of Justice website to learn more about ways to protect themselves. Oregonians can access their 1099-G form online as well through the online claim system. The city of Portland is suing Oregon Public Broadcasting and reporter Monica Semayoa to block the release of tax information related to the Portland Clean Energy Fund, or PSEF. PSEF has been a funding lifeline for city bureaus like PBOT thanks to its over $750 million budget, funded through a 1% surcharge on local sales by large retailers. Last year, OPB filed a public records request to understand which businesses were required to pay and how much they were contributing to the fund. The city denied the request. They said the request violated taxpayers' rights to confidentiality, as stated in the city code and Oregon law. The Multnomah District Attorney's Office, however, disagreed with the city. On January 8th, DA Mike Schmidt granted the OPB petition in part and ordered the city to release tax records without explicit connection between business names and dollar amounts. His office argued Oregon's public records law superseded the city's confidentiality code and its state law did not apply in this context. In response to the DA decision, the Portland City Council unanimously decided to sue. They joined some of the state's largest business lobbying groups who have called the DA decision a dangerous precedent for taxpayer privacy. Supporters of OPB have pointed to the city's historical lack of transparency. 
PSAF has generated $587 million since 2019, far beyond its projected funding. A bill in the Washington state legislature would give people in prison the right to vote. If passed, it could affect more than 14,000 Washingtonians behind bars. KBOO's Piper Vara has more on the story. Legislation in Olympia could give people in Washington prisons their voting rights. House Bill 2030, known as the Free the Vote Act, would allow incarcerated people to vote in elections. It would grant that right to more than 14,000 people in the state's prisons. Charles Longshore, a Skokomish tribal member, was convicted of second-degree murder in 2012 and is serving a 35-year sentence in a prison north of Olympia. He says black, indigenous, and other people of color are disproportionately impacted by mass incarceration. We have been disenfranchised. Our humanity has been taken. And primarily, minority people are still continuing to be denied access to the poor. Incarcerated people are allowed to vote in Maine, Vermont, and the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Republicans have expressed opposition to the bill, and so has Washington Secretary of State Steve Hobbs' office, which said voting rights shouldn't be given to people, quote, who have not yet paid their debt to society, end quote. Anthony Blankenship with Free the Vote Washington says if people behind bars were able to vote, they would feel more connected with their communities, which would also make them less likely to reoffend. Building that sense of civic engagement, civic learning, and care about your community is what we're hoping to do with this bill. Longshore says it's hard to feel like a citizen when he doesn't have the right to vote. Our goal is to rehabilitate people and bring them home and make them better men or women than they were when they came in. You can't do that without restoring their right to vote and making them whole and making them feel included in a part of the state. For KB News and the Public News Service, I'm Papa Vera. Trump is making problems for a border deal. Ron DeSantis accuses a student group of supporting terrorism. Missouri's governor says a new ban has resulted in zero abortions. And Trump advisor Peter Navarro gets four months in jail. With those stories and more, it's Farah Siddiqui with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. This has never been about charity. This is about cold, hard American interests. It is in the United States direct interest for authoritarians not to feel free to redraw, redraw maps by force. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he still hopes for a deal on aid to Ukraine paired with changes to border policy. Attacks from former President Donald Trump are putting the border negotiations in jeopardy. But Democrats say Republicans will have to decide if they want solutions or just an issue Trump can run on. A super PAC supporting former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is reportedly bringing in significant donations. And Haley herself is sounding defiant about the Republican nomination fight. Bring it, Donald. Show me what you got. Trump insulted Haley yesterday, and he posted on social media that anybody that makes a contribution to Bird Brain will be permanently banned from the MAGA camp. Former Trump spokesman Anthony Scaramucci calls that a sign of frustration. This is, this is really hurting Donald Trump. He knows that which is why he's so frustrated and why he's launching all these threats. Vermont progressive Bernie Sanders is growing increasingly vocal in his criticism of what he calls the extremist right-wing government in Israel. Netanyahu government 
is continuing its military approach, which is both immoral and in violation of international law. Democrats, including the White House, are pressing Bibi Netanyahu to allow Palestinian autonomy in Gaza after the war ends. The prime minister has previously opposed a two-state solution, but his popularity with the Israeli public has cratered. Ron DeSantis is accusing a University of Florida pro-Palestinian group of supporting terrorism. Justin Sadowski with the Council on American-Islamic Relations says he's engaging in unconstitutional authoritarianism. The governor of Florida has not only attempted to kick students for justice in Palestine off campus, but he's also threatened their members with expulsion and even criminal prosecution. Missouri Governor Mike Parsons is bragging that the state's strict eight-week abortion ban is working as intended. When I came to Jefferson City, nearly 8,000 elective abortions were performed annually in Missouri. And as I stand before you today, I am proud to report that number is zero. The state doesn't allow exceptions for rape or incest. According to a study just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, states that ban abortions without rape exceptions saw 64,000 pregnancies from sexual assault since Roe was overturned. Former Trump advisor Peter Navarro is headed to prison. Even if they don't put me and Donald Trump in prison, they want to bankrupt us. They want to distract us from the mission. I'm Farah Siddiqui for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. A new report claims two economic studies are inflating the projected benefits of Shell's massive Pennsylvania petrochemical plant, leading to misleading promises of prosperity for policymakers and residents. The studies help secure billions in tax breaks for the project. The Ohio River Valley Institute report now challenges their accuracy and offers alternative recommendations. Danielle Smith has more. A new report says two economic impact studies gave misleading information to Pennsylvania policymakers and residents about the economic advantages of the petrochemical complex operated by Shell in Beaver County. According to the findings from the Ohio River Valley Institute, the plastic plant hasn't brought the economic boom and promised jobs haven't materialized. Report co-author Nick Messenger explains the studies published by Robert Morris University were used to justify billions of dollars worth of tax incentives for the Shell project. This analysis had really been done, honestly, using a lot of Shell's own assumptions. And this study really did that. It, it made some assumptions that were pretty questionable. And and that's why they got a, a large overestimate in the economic impact. He adds that as the plant approaches one year of operations, some of the long-term employment opportunities have not been sustainable. The report found that since the project was first announced in 2012, Beaver County has lost nearly 10% of its jobs and more than 3% of its business firms. Shell has not yet replied to a request for comment. Messenger contends the Shell plant negatively affects home values in Beaver County and creates environmental health risks like asthma. Residents also report concern over the environmental impacts of Shell flaring excessive gas into the atmosphere. And the plant has struggled to operate. You know, they came to a $10 million environmental settlement with Pennsylvania uh, last year. Um, they've exceeded their pollution limits. They've had to shut down production several times because of faulty construction and, and just uh, malfunctions in the facility. The report encourages policy leaders
voters in Pennsylvania and across the country to ask more difficult questions when economic analysis like these are presented. According to Shell's website, they aim to speed up the shift to a net zero emissions energy business by cutting emissions from its operations and the energy products it sells. I'm Danielle Smith, Keystone State News Connection. You're listening to the KBOO Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for Counterspin, your look behind the headlines with fairness and accuracy in reporting. At 6, it's Rising Up with Sonali. Then at 7, it's Civic Cipher. Tonight, there's going to be a low of 45 degrees with a 100% chance of rain. Tomorrow, there's a 75% chance of light rain and a high temperature of 55 degrees. Today in history in 1971, Look Magazine included a gay couple from Minnesota, Jack Baker and Mike McConnell, as part of that week's cover article on The American Family. They were the first same-sex couple in the U.S. to be granted a marriage license. The quote of the day is from American poet Adrian Rich, who said, The moment of change is the only poem. A main bill aimed at protecting transgender youth's access to care triggered claims of potential kidnapping. LD-1735 was proposed by Maine Democrats. It sought to provide protections for trans youth and their parents seeking gender-affirming care, as well as having the state take emergency custody of abused trans kids if the child were still within its borders. Kea Rachik operates the Libs of TikTok social media account and posted a misleading interpretation of the legislation, prompting outrage from the right. Rachik's post incorrectly claimed that the new bill would allow the state to take custody of children if their parents opposed gender transition procedures. She said, quote, The new proposed bill in Maine says the state can take custody of a kid if the parents oppose sex change surgery and the chemical castration of their kids, end quote. She urged people to email legislators whose addresses she posted. A variety of far-right extremists and notable Republican influencers became angry online. The actual text of LD-1735 did not say the state would take custody in cases where parents oppose gender-affirming procedures. Instead, it would block the enforcement of subpoenas and arrests related to gender-affirming health care if they're based on the laws of another state that conflict with Maine's protections. Specifically, it would have allowed Maine to have jurisdiction in custody battles if one parent lives in a state with banned or restricted gender-affirming care and the other lives in Maine. The Maine House's Judiciary Committee initially postponed its work session on LD 1735, partly related to the controversy and partly related to bad weather. Republican State Representative David Hagan was quoted as saying, This bill authorizes the kidnapping and massacring of children from other states without parental consent, end quote. He told KB reporter Josh Salem in a brief interview right before this newscast, the bill was just killed in the Senate Judiciary Committee, meaning it would not be brought to the main senator house. Hagan feels his remarks were responsible for its lack of success. Alabama just put a condemned prisoner to death using nitrogen gas. This was the first time that untested method of execution was used by a U.S. state. Kenneth Smith, 58, died at 8.25 p.m. Central Time after several last-minute appeals failed. 
Smith said, quote, Tonight, Alabama caused humanity to take a step backwards. I'm leaving with love, peace, and light. Thank you for supporting me. Love all of you, end quote. The gas was administered through a mask, flowing for about 15 minutes. Experts worried this method might be dangerous for prison officials, since the gas could leak out of the mask or pool above the prisoner's head. It is a method that veterinarians say is inhumane to use on most mammals. Smith appeared conscious for about 10 minutes, despite previous claims that nitrogen asphyxia would be nearly instantaneous. This is the second time Alabama has attempted to execute Smith. In 2022, the state tried and failed to kill him via lethal injection. Smith was one of three men convicted for his involvement in 1988 for the murder-for-hire killing of Elizabeth Sennett. After his trial in 1989, 10 of 12 jury members voted that he should receive the death penalty. But that conviction was later reversed when it was revealed that prosecutors had unconstitutionally struck black jurors from the pool. When Smith was retried in 1996, all but one juror voted against the death penalty and recommended he spend life in prison instead. But the trial judge overruled the jury and imposed that death penalty. The Alabama statute that allows judges to override jury recommendations has since been replaced. According to recent data, 28% of people born between 1997 and 2012 identify as queer. This compares with 16% of millennials, 7% of Gen X, and 4% of both baby boomers and the silent generation. More than half of Gen Z adults agreed that, quote, we won't be able to solve the country's big problems until the older generation no longer holds power. More than half, along with a majority of millennials, also believe that roles and terms related to the gender binary are outdated. Many survey respondents use the term queer, as well as gay or lesbian, to avoid misconceptions that they're excluding people. Researchers note that there's likely no increase in the percentage of queer people per generation. Instead, they suggest that more people feel comfortable coming out in 2024 than in past social climates. This data reflects the fluidity of sexuality and a growing attitude of positivity toward change. Cleanup of the Columbia River Superfund site Bradford Island is slow but steady. Toxic waste dumping by the Army Corps of Engineers contaminated fish in the area, a key food source for indigenous people in the region. With that story and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Advocates are making slow but steady progress to clean up a portion of the Columbia River that has been named an EPA Superfund site. Eric Tigodoff has more. Toxic pollution dumped by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers over 40 years at Bradford Island contaminated fish in the area, which are used as sustenance by the region's indigenous people. Rose Longoria is Regional Superfund Project Manager for the Yakima Nation. She says the contaminated site has been known for two decades, but only recently got Superfund listing. If it wasn't for Yakima Nation, Bradford Island would not be on the national priorities list. And even now, I believe that if it wasn't for Yakima, no one else would be pushing this hard to get this site the attention that it needs. There is a do not eat advisory for resident fish near Bradford Island. Organizations like Columbia Riverkeeper have created advisories in English and Spanish to let people know which fish are safe to harvest. Laura Shira is an environmental engineer with Yakima Nation Fisheries. She says resident fish near Bradford Island have the highest in the nation concentration of a toxic compound known as polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs. There's all these fishing platforms on the Washington shoreline, on Goose Island, on the Oregon shoreline, and those are tribal fishing platforms, and they're within like a quarter 
quarter to a third of a mile of what we know to be the worst contaminated area on that north shore of Bradford Island. While it's been listed as a Superfund site, Yakima Nation and others in the region are still waiting on a concrete cleanup plan. Longoria says the PCB levels in resident fish make this an emergency. There are significant data gaps that need to be filled, but we need to do that as expeditiously as possible and determine the full nature and extent of contamination and determine the best way of cleaning up the site to protect human health and the environment. I'm Eric Tegadoff. One of the longest-running and most lucrative mid-distance sled dog races in the world gets underway in western Alaska Friday night. As KYUK's Emily Schwing reports, the field is deep and includes Alaska Native competitors who are making waves in the mushing world. Pete Kaiser is the second winningest musher in Kuskokwim 300 history. With seven championships, and he'll have his dog team lined out at the start line again this year. You know, if you get in a position at some point during the race to win, then maybe it's your race to lose. But before the race starts... I don't, I don't think of it that way. Competition in this year's race is fierce and includes last year's Iditarod champion, Ryan Reddington. It's quite the dog race with the competition here, so it's going to be um, whoever makes the top three is going to have to have a really good good dog team and a good execute a good race plan. Richie Deal will also be on the sled runners, vying for a second career win but he says he's not sure if his dogs have what it takes for a top finish. So I don't know. It's hard to say like, if you could um, put me in that group. But I, you know, if they look good, I'm definitely not going to back off the throttle. Per mile, the purse for the 300-mile sled dog race is one of the most lucrative in mushing, totaling $185,000. The trail takes dog teams through a half-dozen predominantly indigenous communities on Alaska's Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta. This year's is the 45th running of the Kuskokwim 300. For National Native News, I'm Emily Schwing in Bethel. Apple plans to provide grants to the Sundance Institute Indigenous Program and the National Museum of the American Indian Variety Reports. It's part of the company's Empowering Creatives Program. The grants are intended to support and partner with Indigenous communities and amplify voices and experiences of Indigenous people. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Federal tax credits can make it cheaper to buy an electric car, but many low-income people aren't aware of the incentives. Dr. Anthony Lazowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Federal tax credits can make it cheaper for people to buy electric cars, but not everyone is aware of these incentives. That information was not getting to the Latino community. That's Steve Alfaro of Avanza EV, an initiative that was launched to get the word out. Last summer, his team chose two apartment complexes in Maryland where many residents are Latino and low-income. They knocked on doors, set up tables with information, and organized pop-up EV car shows at the apartments. All outreach was done in English and Spanish. The residents were able to see various car models, hear from EV drivers about their experiences, and learn how to take advantage of federal incentives worth up to $7,500. I was able to bring this information to them. I really enjoyed seeing, you know, their eyes light up when they would realize that this was a real government program. I'm not lying to them. I'm not selling them a vehicle. I'm just bringing the information to them. Alfaro says buying a car is a big investment, so low-income residents may be slower to switch to EVs. 
but he says it's critical that they hear about federal tax credits so they can take advantage of those incentives when the time is right for them, and no one is left behind in the transition to electric vehicles. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. You're listening to the KBU Evening News for Friday, January 26, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news, stories, and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes myself, Josh Salem, Piper Vara, Reed Johnson, and my co-anchor, Ezra. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is Reed Johnson. Special thanks to Antonia Gonzalez, Farah Siddiqui, Danielle Smith, and Dr. Anthony Lizowitz. The director of the evening news is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash evening news. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Josh Salem. And I'm Ezra. All our KBU programs, including the evening news, are supported by our members. If you would like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm give or text KBU to 44321. Stay tuned now for Counterspin. To Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, elite media can give the impression that problems wax and wane along with their attention to them. And not to put too fine a point on it, they're done with police brutality. So if you think news media show you the world, You'll be surprised to hear that 2023 saw killings by law enforcement in the U.S. up from the previous year, which was up from the year before that, including not just those shot dead, but those fatally shocked by a stun gun, beaten, or restrained to death. 36% of those killed were fleeing, and yes, they were all disproportionately black. As far as corporate media are concerned, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Communities, on the other hand, are hard at work reimagining public safety without punitive policing. 
There's new work on those possibilities, and we'll hear about it from Manifa Bandele from the Movement for Black Lives. Also on the show, there is little research that is more important or less acknowledged than that from, at the time, Princeton, now UCLA's Martin Gillens, and Northwestern's Benjamin Page in 2014. On the 